Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June the 10th, 2021, and I have a confession. Always have confessions at the beginning of this kind of show. Uh, I forgot about something really important a couple of weeks ago. Really, uh, I meant to have a show about it, and then it completely escaped my mind. Uh, two weeks ago, or a little over two weeks ago, there was an extremely important event on May 24th, 2021. Uh, the great Bob Dylan, Americans, America's greatest artist, certainly of the 20th century, if not in history, was uh, 80 years old. Um, lots of celebration uh, on May 24th. There were tweets about what to watch. Of course, the obligatory lists of his 100 greatest songs. Uh, what wasn't, though, I think under debate was whether or not Bob Dylan uh, is or was or will be great. I don't think there's any debate about that. Some of his biographers got involved in a big debate about who had the best book about Dylan, but no one's debating the value of Dylan. And I think one of the things that um, really underlines his greatness was uh, last year in 2020, he came out with a new album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, uh, at the age of 79, which is amongst perhaps the greatest uh, uh, music album, certainly uh, in his career, if not in American music history. There was one particularly brilliant song, I think, um, on, uh, on, on Rough and Rowdy Ways. It's My Own Version of You. And it's sort of autobiographical. It's about how uh, Dylan invented or reinvented himself because I think one of the, the great things about Dylan is his ability to build and rebuild himself. In my own version of year, you, he said, um, I want to bring someone to life, someone I've never seen. You know what I mean. You know exactly what I mean. I'll take Scarface Pacino and the Godfather Brando, mix them up in a tank and get a robot commando. Uh, what I think... Um, Dylan is talking about there is a kind of reverse engineering. And that's been his remarkable skill over his 80 years to continually reverse engineer himself. So this is a great opportunity to talk about reverse engineering. My guest on the show today uh, is a distinguished doctor, although fortunately he doesn't describe himself as a doctor uh, in his book. Uh, Ron Friedman is a is a uh, a very distinguished thinker on um, on creativity, on invention and reinvention, and his new book, Decoding Greatness: How the Best in the World Reverse uh, uh, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success, is a is is a really uh, stimulating read. So, Ron, is Dylan uh, example number one in terms of reverse engineering. You don't talk that much about him in the book, although there are lots of other examples of people who love Dylan, like Steve Jobs, who you begin the book with. What does Dylan 
Bob Dylan teach us about reverse engineering? I don't know that I can speak to Bob Dylan specifically, but what I can tell you is that musicians as a whole, as a community, have relied on reverse engineering for quite some time. And so the example I do speak to in Decoding Greatness has to do with The Doors and how The Doors wrote Light My Fire. So that's a song that will probably strike you as slightly unusual when you first hear it. And then what you find out when you discover how that song was written is that they started off with a typical rock and roll song. In fact, they weren't very happy with it. Many in the band considered it very sunny and Cher, which is the way uh, you would describe a song as being kind of passe and uh, mainstream uh, back in the 1960s. And then they decided to play around with it. And they layered on top of that bossa nova, which you could hear in the beat. And uh, on top of that, they started with an opening that was a riff on Johann Sebastian Bach. And so what you see in the creation of that song is the layering of multiple creative elements and combining them in a new way. And that often is the case with a lot of creative inventions. And what I think that I th one of the things that I think is inspiring about that example is that it's okay to combine different elements from ideas that you have enjoyed in the past. And out of that, is a path to creativity that doesn't require you to be necessarily novel in, in the sense of having to go into a dark room and come up with an idea nobody's ever thought of before. It's just having a more conscious roadmap about how creative inventions actually go uh, about uh, being created. Ron, you use the word novel, and I think you're suggesting in, in your work and in your thinking that the world and our lives are kind of novels. We're all part of the story. And the challenge and the opportunity is, is recognizing uh, our place in this narrative. We're never the beginning or the end. That's what you're suggesting in Decoding Greatness, aren't you? Yeah, I, th I think that's right. In fact, there is a number of quotes I can I can share with you about how, in fact, if you want, I think it was Carl Sagan who said, if you want to create app, uh, if you want to cre create apple pie from scratch, you have to create the universe or something like that. I'm sure I've butchered that quote. But the idea is that the elements are all out there. It's just about understanding how creative ideas come about and having a roadmap for for uh, generating them ourselves that is empowering and that's what i've tried to do in decoding greatness is looking at how some of the best inventions have come about and what we can learn from them and how we can apply that same formula to our work to both accelerate our success but also come up with novel ideas as i suggested in the beginning ron uh one of the greatest of all admirers of bob dylan was uh steve jobs right. and uh, I, I think uh only, only Dylan had the nerve, the audacity, the rudeness to uh, reject Jobs's friendship, but he's probably the one figure in the pantheon of American greats in the 20th century above Jobs, uh, Dylan. You begin the book with a story uh, about uh, Steve Gates uh, and, uh, uh, sorry, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates uh, back in the early days of the computer age in which um, Gates appeared to to to, uh, to 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 beat Jobs, he embarrassed him in public about um, an invention. Uh, but you might tell this story and how one of the remarkable things about Jobs was he, ne like Dylan, he never forgot, and any defeat he turned into a victory. It's a great way of putting it. And so just to share the story with folks who aren't familiar with it is that back, first of all, for some context, back uh, in the 1970s and 80s, computers looked nothing like the sleek, intuitive devices that we're all now used to today. If you wanted a computer to do anything, you had to reach for a keyboard and input a rigid text-based language, and that's how you communicated your instructions. 
Today, of course, we just point and click. And that innovation is something called the graphic user interface, otherwise known as GUI, okay? Within, within Silicon Valley, it's known as GUI. And uh, both Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were rushing to bring that to market. Neither of them had created the graphic user interface. That invention was delivered by Xerox. And both Bill Gates and Steve Jobs were aware of the Xerox Alto, which is the first uh, uh, computer to, to include a graphic user interface. And they understood the potential. They saw that there was something big here and that Xerox wasn't utilizing it. Xerox thought they were going to sell it as part of a very expensive computer, hundreds of thousands of dollars to large organizations. And the reason for that, the reason they did, couldn't conceive of a world in which computers were a household item is because they're executives all grew up in the 1950s and just viewed uh, uh, typing as the domain of secretaries. They just couldn't conceive of a world in which people use computers. Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, both saw it and both rushed to reverse engineer the Alto, meaning they saw something that was working and being underutilized, tried to work backward to figure out how it was created and then evolved the idea in different directions. So, in the And let's just remind ourselves the fact that I can put Gates's image up and then Jobs' image up. I'm using a mouse. Uh, okay. And so we, the, these are our third hands or our 11th fingers now. I mean, these are so intuitive that we take them totally for granted. The one thing, perhaps, Ron, you're a little polite here. The one thing that we need to remind ourselves is that Steve Jobs stole the idea from Xerox. And he, he wasn't shy about it. And I think that, again, connects Jobs with Dylan. They were both supreme or both are supreme uh, thieves. Is that fair? Well that's a strong word. And I uh, would challenge it slightly in the sense that he didn't just copy, he evolved, meaning he yeah. took an well, idea. Thief, that... and, and I don't mean that in a value judgment kind of way. I mean, for, for, for these guys, thievery is borrowing and adapting. Isn't that fair? Um, thievery is a strong word, too. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm less comfortable with that because I think that there is a stigma associated with using ideas that we didn't generate because we we have this belief that if we didn't come up with it therefore we shouldn't do it and i think that is crippling for a lot of people because they, there's an assumption that if i didn't come up with it i can't claim uh, or i can't adapt it to in a new way and that i think limits the amount of creativity and innovation that we enjoy because people have this stigma associated with it and so i just want to differentiate between copying which i would say you know, if we if Steve Jobs broke into Xerox or got their code and then sold it under Apple's name, that I would say, okay, he stole it. But to work backwards to say, here's this idea, or for example, like if I if I took this podcast and I said, wow, Andrew's got a great uh, a way of asking questions. Let me figure out how he does it, and then then let me apply that formula to developing a podcast for lawyers or for accountants. Is that stealing? I don't know. I think it's more like learning and adapting. And that's a skill that we all desperately need in order to succeed in the world. And that's the focus of the book. That is indeed the focus of the book. You begin, you say, uh, throughout our lives, we, we've been told two major stories about extraordinary achievement and human capacity for greatness. The first is it comes from talent. Uh, the second is that greatness comes from practice. This is something that has been repeated endlessly, perhaps practiced endlessly, particularly by people like Malcolm Gladwell, who you write about uh, in your book. Uh, but then you go on to say, but there's a third story about greatness, one that's not often shared. This is, of course, the core of the book. Um, it's called reverse engineering. It's a path 
to skill acquisition and mastery that's stunningly common amongst icons everywhere, from artists and writers to chefs and athletes to inventors and entrepreneurs. Are you saying, Ron, in the book that we can all become great? Or to some people, is it for some of us, we simply can't decode greatness? In other words, if people buy your book, can they become great? That's a great question. I think the path will become a lot simpler for you. And I don't mean to discount the idea that talent and practice don't matter for anything. I think they they are helpful to a point. And that point is that, you know, for example, practice, you, you can't practice an idea you've never considered. And so practicing in isolation won't make you great, particularly in when it comes to knowledge work. So when we think about the work that we all do every day, problem solving, coming up with new ideas, innovating, in order to do that, you need to learn from the best in your field. And how you go about that is the process of reverse engineering, which simply means finding great examples and then working backward to figure out how they were created and more importantly, how you can recreate them yourself. And so I, in the book, I talk about all these different strategies that people use, uh, not to step on future questions, Andrew, but just to give a few examples. Photographers, for example, will, will look at a, a photograph and not just see an object, which is what I would look at because I'm a novice photographer. I would see the person in the, in the photo. They will look at the reflection in the person's eyes to see where the camera was placed, where the light source was. Chefs will often order food to go, spread the, an intricate sauce across a white dish in order to identify what the ingredients are that went into it. Um, I know as an author, I often will get a nonfiction book turned to the back to the endnote section would tell me where the author got his or her sources. So all of these strategies are about looking for clues about how an object was created and how you can learn from that to create your own object that similarly leverages some of those same techniques. So really it's a, it's a mindset of curiosity and skill building that allows you to improve at a faster rate than simply relying on talent or investing in 10,000 hours of practice. Uh, let's quickly go back to Lynn. I hope I'm not making this too much about him. Of course, when Bruce Springsteen emerged, everyone called him the second Dylan, which I don't think he was very happy about. In your book, you have an interesting example of, of Tom Petty who made the choice not to follow Springsteen. Uh, to be original, to decode greatness, do we sometimes have to, uh, if you like, uncode greatness, if we have to sidestep the, 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 obvious, uh, the obvious way of, of reverse engineering? Yeah, so what you're referring to there is in the book I talk about at the beginning how to reverse engineer and how you can apply this in your life and your field. And then it's critical to not just copy but also evolve. And the reason you want to copy is because in many cases you won't have the particular skills that allow you to execute the formula that you have just copied, at least not effectively right out of the gate. But more importantly, audience expectations shift over time. And so I give the example of Twilight and how when that book Twilight came out, the idea of a young adult book, a young young adult novel about vampires was became very popular, blew up everywhere. And then as a result, there were tons of copycats that were not even nearly, uh, didn't achieve a fraction of the success of the original book. But what did succeed is, some, is, a for, is, is taking the existing formula and evolving it slightly. So what what made a, a ton of what had a ton of success was Abraham Lincoln as a vampire hunter. So uh, that so, was uh, Ron, to be really great. Aren't you also burying what you're emulating? Dylan did that time and time again. He did it, of course, when he famously shifted from um, acoustic to electric. We had 
John Taplin on the show, who was Dylan's manager at the time. Um, you don't necessarily do it, it consciously, but you, um, you, 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 you bury the thing you're copying if you do it really well. Uh, I don't know about that. I don't know. Burying, evolving is a better word for me. Uh, and, and what I think, um, and just to go back to the, to the Tom Petty, uh, Bruce Springsteen, um, anecdote, Tom Petty realized that there was a lot of similarity between his style and Bruce Springsteen. So he adopted a, uh, an attitude of what I call willful ignorance is he deliberately avoided all of Springsteen's music. And you see this with comedians. Uh, Bill Maher, for example, will not watch John Oliver because he doesn't want to be influenced by him. So in those cases, they are taking someone who they realize could have an impact on them and avoiding them. And to a certain extent, I think there's value in choosing and being very selective about who your influences are. Because if you are absorbing the same influences as everyone else, if you're listening to the same podcasts, you're reading the same books, you're uh, reading the same newspapers, you're going to have the same ideas as everyone else. And so you've got to diversify your portfolio of influences. And, and so in the case of Tom Petty, he, he did that deliberately. Now, was he hiding uh, the influence? I don't know about that because I don't know that he was influenced by Bruce Springsteen. He probably was listening to Dylan and other folks yeah. like that. Uh, to be fair, I, I, I don't want to have an argument about uh, Tom Petty. I'm not yeah. sure he's a particularly good artist, but that's that's for another show. <laughs> um, when we talk about then tradition, the, the example you have at the end of the book, which sort of brings everything together, is a man who brought many different traditions together or perhaps... Um, buried lots of traditions to reinvent them. Uh, Vincent van Gogh. Uh, what is so remarkable about van Gogh in terms of this uh, re-engineering of greatness? Why is he, like Steve Jobs, the model that we need to emulate? Well, what I think is so remarkable about his story is that he got to who he became in 10 years without any formal education. And he did that by applying many of the strategies in Decoding Greatness, which involve, evolve recreating- Did he read, uh, did Van Gogh read Decoding Greatness, Ron? Uh, I imagine not since I just wrote it. But what he did do was he used copy work, which is one of the strategies I talk about in the book. And copy work is about taking the work of an established artist and then copying it stroke by stroke to compare your instinctive inclinations against the, the choices of a master. And that process is also applicable in writing. Benjamin Franklin popularized the copywork uh, and, and used it and talked about it in his autobiography. Stephen King did it. It's how he learned to write. Joe Hill, his son, who's also been a remarkable writer and very successful at that, uh, also used, uses copywork uh, whenever he gets stuck in order to just get his engine revving again by channeling Elmore Leonard. And so, that's one example in which Van Gogh uh, applied uh, uh, some of the strategies. He also did uh, many others, which you can get into, like reflective practice, which is a strategy I talk about in the book for improving your skill set. So we have all heard of deliberate practice. This is the idea that was popularized by Gladwell in Outliers. And deliberate practice comes to us from the work of Anders Ericsson. And what Anders Ericsson uh, did, uh, uh, found out in his research is that if you want to improve at a skill, one of the fastest way to do it is to focus on your weaknesses and then get some quick feedback anytime you try to execute so that you can make adaptations that 
slowly get you down the path of improvement. Reflective practice is practicing in the past. It's about writing down what it is you learned today, for example, and comparing that to what your expectations would have been going into today. And there's research out of Harvard Business Review, Harvard Business School, showing that if you just take a few minutes at the end of each day to write down what it is you learned today at work, you will improve your performance by about twenty percent. That's a remarkable. You think that's what uh, uh, Van Gogh did. He did. He wrote letters to his brother Theo, and in those letters, uh, there was a lot, a lot of self-reflection. And that self—it wasn't self-reflective practice in the sense of he was keeping a diary, but he was doing many of the same things by writing letters to his brother Theo. And that—that so that, that is something that most of us don't do. We don't pause to reflect on what we learned today. And if we did, we'd improve a lot more quickly. Ron, I was at the uh, MoMA in New York a couple of weeks ago, my first post-COVID trip. <laughs> and going to the Van Gogh room, walking from the traditional Impressionists, the Monets and the Manets to the Van Goghs, um, was a, a, a very natural, logical process. It's mm -hmm. obvious for me, not that I'm a, a great expert on art, but it's obvious how and why Van Gogh reacted to Impressionism. He was moving mm -hmm. away from it. As you say, he was influenced by it. He mastered the technique. Mm -hmm. but he moved dramatically away in the same way as Steve Jobs um, reinvented the computer through his borrowing of, of, of Xerox technology in the same way Bob Dylan changed the whole history of, of, of rock and roll through his shift from uh, acoustic to electric. That shift, though, can't be quantified, can it? Anyone can learn the technique of Impressionism, but not everyone can become a Van Gogh and understand the deficiencies, the need to radically move away from that tradition and reinvent a new one. You know, I'm a researcher, so I think everything is quantifiable. And you uh, do, yeah, everything. Yeah, I think I think most things can be quantified. And the case here is, <clears throat> for example, one of the, one of the techniques I talk about in decoding greatness is quantifying features, meaning putting numbers to ideas. And I show you how to apply that to TED Talks. And you can see key differences between different TED Talks by quantifying certain features, like the number of times uh, the speaker delivers a fact, the number of jokes the speaker delivers. Uh, in the case of Van Gogh, what you see is that there's a combination of impressions. Let me just go, I, I take that, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to interrupt. When I interrupt, it's because I'm intrigued with what you're saying, Ron. Okay. Um, you can quantify as many TED speeches as you want, but um, the really remarkable TED speeches are not remarkable for any data reason. They're through performance and through the originality of their presentation, aren't they? That's quantifiable. Everything, everything's quantifiable. I mean, if we're talking about uh, something that is a performance feature, what is it? Is it the deliberate pause? Is it the storytelling? That's quantifiable. All of that's quantifiable. And that's the key to figuring out what makes something different is- But, but that's uh, the problem. Uh, that's the problem with TED speeches is too many people watch them and they, they see the really successful ones and they copy them. And they're all now people pausing and looking at the camera and <laughs> prowling around the stage as if they're tigers. And they're all incredibly boring. Well, um, I, I don't disagree with you. And that's because the formula has become um, predictable. And so that's why it's not enough to just copy a formula. It's about combining formulas, very much like Van Gogh, just to bring it back right. full circle, where he used Impressionism, but he also added to that the style of Eastern art with uh, they have strong borders between um, 
in the outline, uh, and he used strong colors, which made it distinctive. So there were a lot of uh, different ideas that were combined in a new way. And here, maybe it is the deliberate pause, maybe without the prowling around the stage, but maybe, you know, it's about finding the features that make something unique and then combining them in a, in a different way, but also ensuring that they feel unique to you. Because if I adopt that style where I start a speech and I just look into the camera and I say, you know, six years ago, I was hit by a bus. That seems pretty, pretty heavy handed, right? But that's how these TED Talks often right. start. And I think it's because it's gotten, um, it's gotten very predictable and almost a, a little bit of a, of a parody of itself. So you have 10 lessons for um, decoding greatness. Become a collector, which of course, the Dillons and the Jobs and the Van Goghs are masters. Spot the difference. I'm not going to go through it. Well, think in blueprints, don't mimic, evolve. Uh, embrace the vision ability gap, keep score selectively, take the risk out of risk taking, distrust comfort, harness the future and the past, ask wisely. Of those 10, Ron, where, what's the most important? It depends what you're optimizing for. So if you're optimizing... Well, if you're just starting, if you, wanna, the if first you want to embark yeah. on, the, uh, on the path to greatness in terms of decoding greatness, where, where should we begin? I would start with number one, which is become a collector. And what I mean by that is identifying examples that you find impactful in your space and then keeping them on a list somewhere. You can bookmark them on Chrome. You can put them in Evernote if you like. And the idea here is that if you're a copywriter, for example, you might collect headlines. If you're a designer, you might collect logos. If you're a presenter, collect some presentation decks. And then that takes us to the next step, which is spot the difference. And in spot the difference, what you're trying to do is compare the extraordinary, which are the items in your collection, against the ordinary, things that didn't make it into your collection. And by doing that uh, exercise, and when I say, by the way, spot the difference, I'm talking about the classic kids game where you look at an image and you have another image on the side of it, and then you look for discrepancies. That's what you're looking for here is what's different about this example. And it's having that mindset of identifying key differences that you can't help, if you, if you do that consistently, you can't help but identify the features that make something great. And that gives you ideas for features you wanna include in your execution, whether it's right. writing a book, writing a deck, writing a memo, whatever the case may be, you can get better by collecting and spotting the difference. And to be fair, your book, uh, Decoding Greatness, um, like your last book, uh, The Best Place to Work, is designed in many ways for executives and for the corporate world. And you have other examples in your book, from um, Chipotle to Starbucks, of companies who have essentially decoded greatness. So it's not just individuals. Companies can do it as well, can't they? That's right. And if you're looking for creative ideas in any space, whether you're looking to write a book like Kurt Vonnegut did, and uh, or you're looking for uh, to write music like The Doors or uh, The Radiohead, which is another example in the book. We also talk about how Barack Obama became a great speaker, and I'm happy to share that story if you'd like. Um, yeah. Okay. So for, for those who aren't aware, Barack Obama, when he first entered politics, was not an instant success. In fact, he got trounced his first race for Congress. And he lost by a margin of more than two to one. And the problem was, if you could believe it, he was a terrible speaker. He was a law school professor. He was used to lecturing people. And voters didn't appreciate being lectured to, and they let him know at the ballot box. And uh, so for a while, he, he was floundering. He thought about leaving politics until it, he was until he noticed what was happening in the churches, where he saw how pastors were delivering sermons. And from that experience, he drew out the deliberate pause, the modulating of tone that came back 
back and started telling stories on the stump. He was a transformed politician. And what I think that story illustrates is how Barack Obama didn't find his talent. He didn't go practice for 10,000 hours. He identified an element that was working in a different field and he imported it into his own. And that's a strategy we can all use. And it also gives you license to just go and enjoy some things in life, right? You can go right. ahead and enjoy that guilty pleasure. If you enjoy Italian architecture or Iranian films, whatever the case may be, you can enjoy it because in those experiences and through doing spot the difference, you can figure out what makes things work and come up with some ideas about how you can import those elements into your field. Exactly. Uh, and uh, I have to end with Dylan because it's it was his 80th birthday run. So you, uh, you need to indulge me here. Uh, <laughs> the other song on the uh, album, well, the song is full of masterpieces. One of the masterpieces is um, the third song, I Contain Multitudes. He writes, I paint landscapes, I paint nudes, I contain multitudes. And then the best line, uh, I'm just like Anne Frank, like Indiana Jones and then British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. What, of course, Dylan does then in, 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 in a couple of lines is compare Anne Frank, the Rolling Stones um, and um, and uh, Indiana Jones. And it's the, the that combination. You, As you say, Ron, you have to be a collector. But you have to collect different things. If you collect mm -hmm. the same things, then you're not going to decode greatness. And the real great ones, the Jobs, the Dylans, the Van Goghs, they're the ones who have collected so many different things that they put them together with remarkable originality. Isn't that fair? Absolutely fair. And I, you know, I'll tell you as a writer, uh, I don't just look at one other author and say, "Hey, how do I become like Gladwell?" Everyone knows Gladwell is the is is probably the most successful currently uh, working nonfiction writer. And uh, if I just wanted to be like Gladwell, I probably could not execute that well. And so I looked to Gladwell for his word selection. I think he is very very effective at finding the perfect word. Um, but I don't necessarily like the length of his stories. I find myself scanning them uh, after a while, but he obviously loves stories and he's aiming at, at getting you, you to um, feel something and, and to feel badly for the person. He's looking to spark emotion. I can appreciate that that works for him. I'm less interested in that. I'm more interested in actionable insights. And so I embrace that element in myself by combining some of his ideas or, or, or approach with the my, my proclivities as a writer. And out of that, hopefully something original comes about. Well, that's Ron Friedman's own way of containing multitudes, decoding greatness, <laughs> how the best in the world reverse engineer success, stimulating, interesting, accessible. I'm not sure everyone has greatness in them, but we all have more greatness than we actually have. So it's well worth reading. Uh, Ron, uh, uh, you are in... Um, Rochester, New York. Uh, I don't know if they've decoded or reversed engineered greatness up there. Uh, stuck inside in these strange twilight days of, of, of COVID when we're not sure whether we can or can't go out. In addition to your new book, Decoding Greatness, what else should people be reading? Well, I'm going to recommend something that probably hasn't been recommended on the show before. It is J.K. Rowling's The Ichabog. And uh, it is a book that I recently read with my eight-year-old son, Henry. 
And it's phenomenal. She's an excellent, excellent, excellent writer. And you can really, by using some of the, combining some of the techniques that we talk about in Decoding Greatness with reading the Ichabod, you can uncover her pattern. And it's really interesting the way that she um, weaves together different storylines and her writing is just perfect. And as a writer, I can't help but but uh, just really appreciate how hard she works to find the right language. You know, if, if one of the one of the habits writers develop as they're reading other people's work is that they think about, well, if I was, um, if I was, if I was submitting this, what, how would I change this? And so you find yourself kind of mentally crossing out words, changing them. There's nothing to change about her books because they're so well done. So the Ichabog. J.K. Rowling, uh, somewhat controversial writer these days, but her writing isn't controversial. It's what she says, perhaps, that's more controversial. Uh, Ron Friedman, real uh, honor, privilege. Uh, congratulations on the new book. Thank uh, you, sir. Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. Hope I haven't filled this too much with Bob Dylan, but I think he's an excellent <laughs> example of reverse engineering uh, one's life into greatness. Uh, congratulations, as I said, Ron. Keep well, keep writing, keep thinking, keep being original, and we'll have you back on the show in the not-too-distant future. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me.